0: How's everybody doing today? And you know, we have a wide aisle. might have to walk down that thing today. So if you're in the center, you might be in trouble. Eric's, Eric's ready. So um, I want to first of all say uh, what an amazing day yesterday was. Um, there were many of you who joined us at the back to school fair, um, and it was it was incredible. <laughs> Uh, they estimated some 700 people came through, almost 500 um, bags of school supplies, um, and it was it was crazy. 50 volunteers, we ran out of everything. Uh, um, except what? Glue? <laughs> except glue. Um, and uh, chips. We ran out of nacho cheese. Anyway, um, so thanks for those who came out. Uh, it was incredible. And we're already going to start talking about what we're, how we're going to do it different next year and bigger. And, um, uh, but people were incredibly blessed by what happened. Um, you've heard, uh, I want to say something about I Heart North County. You've heard some stuff about I Heart North County. You've maybe seen some stuff in the back about I Heart North County. Um, but uh, myself uh, and two other pastors, Joe Co. Stevens from Passage Community Church and Scott Marshall from Trinity Church, um, of kind of uh, are kind of pioneering this uh, organization that we're praying and moving towards. Hopefully, at some point, it becoming a nonprofit. Um, and the goal of I Heart North County is to make North County a better place. Um, and so, what we're doing is we're telling people, "Hey, uh, what needs do you have?" Um, and so, from plumbing issues, to yard issues, to automotive issues, to all, all kinds of different things, financial needs. Um, we're saying, what, what kind of needs do you have? And then we're trying to help meet those needs, mobilize people, you guys, other churches. We're trying to get other churches on board to mobilize people to build bridges into the community, to live out Jeremiah 29, as it says, um, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you were called into exile. Um, and part of that includes bringing the gospel to that. So bridges into the community to, to share the gospel. Um, and so uh, Sierra has been going—Sierra and Stephen, two of our interns this summer, who they're um, kind of wrapping up, they've been going crazy, doing some crazy stuff and doing a ton of work um, in the community. And so there's opportunities. There's a sheet back there. If you go to iHeartNorthCounty.com, there's a way to sign up. Here's how I want to volunteer. You can get more, more information about what's happening. But be praying. It's in the early stages, um, and it's, it's progressing forward, and we're excited about the opportunity that it's going to bring to be who we believe God's called us to be. Um, so you're in First Peter. Um, growing up, uh, if you're a guy in here, you'll probably identify with this. But for me growing up, I wanted to... I wanted to just be a hero. Um, I wanted to, uh, it, it's kind of still present in my life. Uh, you can ask my wife because I'll listen to like, uh, police scanners and then try to go to the scene and, and, help. Um, not really help, but I'll, I'll try to beat the cops to the scene. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I want to be involved in places where people have need and I can be the one who rises up. And is the hero in the moment. You hear stories about a car falls on somebody and a guy comes up and just supernatural strength lifts the car. And, you know, I just want to be that guy, okay? Um, a- as a kid, uh, that's why my friends and I started a club called the, the Roller Boys. And uh, here's what the Roller Boys was. Um, the Roller Boys was, uh, we were responsible for protecting the neighborhood. Now, no one in the neighborhood knew this, but we, we took sole responsibility for protecting the neighborhood, and our mode of transportation was either a bicycle or rollerblades. And so we were the roller boys, and we would travel around the neighborhood, you know, with, I don't remember, we have bats and flashlights during the day, and be like walkie-talkie. You know, I, I don't have any activity, and that was most of the time the case, but we protected the neighborhood, and we thought we were the coolest guys in the world. Um... You know, we were were heroes. It's why I loved watching the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, come on. Heroes in a half show. Um, They owned Shredder. I mean, they had some mad turtle power on Shredder, and he couldn't do a thing about it. Um, As an athlete, uh, I wanted to be the best. In every sport I played, in everything I did, I wanted to be the best. I wanted the ball in my hands come the end of the game. I was determined to be the best on the team. And then at some point in my life, it seemed so common that Kyle ended up on my team as well. And so I just became content with the fact that he was on my team and not the other team. And I don't have to say much more about about that. But anyway, um, you guys, guys, if if you're a guy in here, you you identify with that. You want to be a hero. And maybe if you're a girl, I'm not, so I don't know how that works how that works, how, if you're wired that way, I don't, I don't know. But th- there's this reality that, we, that we, want, we want to be able to rise up to the occasion and show up for something and be made a big deal about it. Um, t- th- this morning, he- he- here's the deal. Um, we're going to look at First Peter, um, so l- let's do that. Um, and we're going to see this reality that, that there's only one hero, uh, and it's not you. Um, and I know that might be sad news um, but, but really, it's not. Um, so, First Peter, did you read it this week? That's the challenge Rick gave last week. Uh, read through First Peter every single week, um, and we'll keep presenting that challenge to you. But uh, it should be a manageable task, and it's an incredible letter. Um, but we looked last week at the first few verses of First Peter, where Peter um, creates this, just this beautiful greeting and introduction um, to this letter, where he makes much of, of God. Um, I don't know if you picked up on it, but last week, uh, it showed the work of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and their activity in bringing about salvation. If you look in there, look back in there, in verse 2, it talks about the Trinity's role in salvation. Now, many uh, evangelicals, many Christians today have a very man-centered view of salvation. So uh, I made an attempt to try to articulate this by rewording verses 3 through 5 into how um, I think some people maybe articulate their faith. It goes something like this. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to my great faith, I've chosen to be saved. Let's just hope it sticks. Sometimes my faith is alive— More often it's dead, but at least Jesus is alive. And now uh, I have an inheritance, one that's guaranteed to never go away, as long as I don't blow it. God's power, it's a great concept, seen clearly in the Bible, but as far as my life goes, not so much. But I guess we'll find out in the end. Now, that's not very promising. Um, And we're going to look at those verses three through five today and see a totally different story. But I want to start by reading a section from a book called A Kingdom Called Desire. You can follow along on the screen. Like many Christians I know, one of the deepest, most persistent fears of my life is insufficiency. Despite the deep truth of the gospel that proclaims the love of God to me in Jesus, I can't quite experience all that is good in the gospel. And I think I can't experience it because my faith isn't strong enough. It goes like this. God reveals how attractive his love is and I set out to believe it. I may read more or pray more or journal about the changes that Jesus' Jesus's love makes in my life. Then something happens. Some trigger goes off inside of me and I drift. It may be something as simple as busyness or a hectic week leaves me with little time for being silent and alone with God. Almost without notice, I drift into a, a, a place where I am quick to rely on myself rather than Jesus. After a few days or weeks of this, I'm empty. I'm not experiencing God's love. I'm vulnerable to doubt, and I end up trying to justify myself through my own abilities. When I find a, a space to pay attention to my heart, I can realize where I am, and I turn back to God, to the love of God. But honestly... After going through years of doing this, drifting in and drifting out, I come to the conclusion that my faith is insufficient. Here's my dilemma. Everything I desire in Jesus, everything I desire is in Jesus, but I can't access him because my faith is too weak or inconsistent. What hope do I have? If faith comes from God, did he not give me enough? If I'm saved by faith, then I, then I have to work hard at believing. But what if I can't make faith happen? what security do I have? Before I know it, faith becomes a work and no longer resembles a gift of grace. I'm working at making faith happen so that I can receive grace, and now everything is backwards. Hope disappears and desires fade to black. If the only assurance I have is my ability to believe, then I must conclude that I don't have any assurance at all. Jesus is holding out a gift of life. And I stand before him with amputated limbs trying to grasp something that I don't have hands to grab onto. And that lit me up this week as I was reading that. Because I feel like that's so, that's me so often. It's like, God, I want to believe, and like faith is there, and it's like I, I don't even have hands to grab it. But, but here's the thing, so much of my faith becomes more about my ability, my, my heroism, and um, I just want to free us from that this morning. I believe God wants to free us from that this morning, because here's the story. There's only one hero, and it's not you, it's not me, and it never will be. I think, honestly, this is why a lot of guys struggle with having a personal relationship with Jesus. Because there's this confidence, there's this competency, there's this manliness that I don't have need, or if I do, I will meet it. And I will be the hero. Because I'm a man. And we're going to see that as quite different this morning. Um, and so I... Just from the start, I want, I want to do this. I want to tell you. I want to free you from your desire to be the hero in your own salvation, to be the hero in your efforts to reach the people in your life, to be the hero at your workplace, whatever that looks like in your marriage, whatever that looks like in your friendships as a parent. This desire that I have to rise to the occasion and be a certain somebody. And my faith has to be of a certain substance in order to produce. And even this morning, I was sitting over there, standing over there, prepared to come up here. Crazy weekend, lot going on. Danielle's gone, kids all over the place, not feeling prepared. And I'm just like, come on, you got this, Dave. And the Lord's just like, what are you thinking? If I'm the hero of this time, like we might as well stop and walk out that door. Because it's a joke. Now remember, let's do a little context and then we'll dive into the letter. Remember, Rick informed us last week what's happening in this letter. Several months to maybe a year before this letter um, was made, uh, this letter was made available several months to maybe a year before Emperor Nero would, would start his night parties where he'd light up the house, the room, the, the yard by impaling Christians on a stake and burning them. Okay, And if you think you can conjure up enough faith to walk you through that kind of pain, you're kidding yourself. So that's what Jesus is inviting us into. That's what Peter is inviting us into. And notice from the very beginning, he sets this unbelievable foundation. And what's the foundation? The magnificence of God in salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And notice how he starts verse 3 what does he say? Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Okay, why does he start there? Because before he gets anywhere, he wants to say, God, I bless you because you're the hero. I have no part in this game. Or the part that I play is so small compared to the part that you play, have played, and will play to bring about the story of your redemption in the world and in my life. It's so small. And so where I must begin, where Peter must begin, is he must say, God, be blessed. Blessed be God. Why? Because apart from him, what happens? I'm damned to hell. Apart from him, my lot is... Eternal destruction in hell. That's 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 it. So maybe I'll just ask this question today. How do you begin? How do you begin your day? How do you begin a conversation? How do you begin um, a project? God, I bless you for this. This is hard, but this is a joy. But I just bless you for the opportunity to be here. I bless you because of who you are, apart from this situation, apart from my life, but also in my life. I bless you. How do you begin? So Peter begins. God bless you. And then he goes on to talk about him as a father. I love this picture. If if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time and you've read the scriptures, you'll begin to love the idea that God is a father. Because here's the thing, it's really the only faith, the only religion, I don't like to use that word in context of, of our faith, but the only religion where God is seen as a loving father. In every other religion, in every other faith, God is some cosmic cop up in the heavens that you have to do certain things and live a certain way in order to not get him ticked off at you so he doesn't come and drop the hammer on you and the scriptures portray god as a loving father who's active in our lives, who's relational in our lives, who's loving in our lives. Similar to a father's role in the birth of a child. I played a key role in the conception of my kids. I played a, a key role in the bringing the kid my kids into the world. Like that's that's god. That's God's activity in our salvation as a father, bringing about our birth, bringing about new life in him, rebirth, as Peter talks about being born again. It's the same story. you familiar with John chapter 3? I'm not going to go there, but real quick, I didn't plan on doing this, so this is just a little extra free stuff. Um, John chapter 3, where um, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, "Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's like, you must be born again. And he's like, well, that's really awkward. I'm like a grown man, and like, I don't really know how to like go back in, and uh, yeah, that's just weird. And so um, Jesus is like, no, you're missing it. Like, unless I come and change your heart, And adopt you into my family. And you become a child of mine. You cannot know me relationally. Or live forever with me relationally. You must be born again. You must be made alive in me. That's what he's talking about. But he does it under the context of mercy. I love this passage in Titus. It says this. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's our story. If Jesus doesn't show up on the scene, like we stop right there, and that is our story. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because our heroism to run to God. Look at me. I was in the deepest, darkest pit of my life. And I ran to God and He and asked Him to save me. No, that's not really how it went. Partially how it went. But what does it say? But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, this text forces us to address um, a topic that is, is controversial within the Christian faith. It's the topic of election. Um, and um, I love uh, what John Piper says about the idea of controversy. He says there, there's really no sufficient biblical teaching that have not been controversial over the years. I mean, how about the reality of hell? Is that controversial? Maybe slightly. Yeah, that's controversial. But, but here's what we can't do as Christians. We can't take these truths that are controversial and say, well, if it's controversial, then we need to run from that because we're good Christians. And we avoid controversy. We try to live in peace. Well, it just doesn't work that way. Because we have to let the Bible speak. And in, in all my attempts to try to run from the idea of what the Bible teaches about election, like, I can't. Because it's all over the place. Have you ever tried to run from something and you just like you can't because like it's just this haunting you, it's hunting you down. Like I feel that way about the doctrine of election because it's all over the scriptures. And so what do I do? Bend the scriptures? No, I have to at some point say, God, I I, I got to submit to you here. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. I won't answer all your questions, but I want to dive in a tad. Election. Here, here's the definition. An act of God before creation, in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Okay, here's the deal: there's no getting around the truth that God is the initiator in salvation. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. How about this? Greek text is incredibly efficient. Caused us to be born again is one word in the Greek. Like, man, that's, I need, to, I need to get into some of that. That's efficient. Um, ca- it's like, it's his doing, okay? He's the initiator, he is the hero of the salvation story. Let me give you some examples Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. God choosing. I mean, do a word study on that word alone. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But you don't come to God unless he draws you to him because your heart will never want to come to him. That's so what Romans 3 says. No one seeks God. Which is interesting that we start seeker churches. We start movements for people that really don't exist, according to the Bible. John 15, 16. You did not choose me. Like, we hate that as Christians. Yeah, I did. What are you talking about? Yeah, I did. Well, it kind of says you didn't. And it's Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So this is like, but before time began, God's the actor, the initiator that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Last one, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. And this really paints the picture of why a, a biblical view of, of God's sovereignty over salvation totally puts us on the floor. Check it out. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that... Here's the power and beauty of election, as hard as it is to get your mind around it, so that... No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, here's the deal, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the teaching of 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 is that God is the hero And the problem we have with this is, like, we want to write our own story, do we not? Like, we have plans for our lives. We have a calendar, and we have an agenda, and a lot of times we feel really glad about our agenda and our plans. And God's like, your agenda is pitiful. And and you're wanting to write your own story, but what I'm wanting to do is lovingly smash your story and invite you into my story, because... It's not even going to compare. And that's what God does. There's no room for us to do that when we understand the biblical picture of God's sovereignty over salvation. And what does it go on to talk about? Look back at verse 3. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so the resurrection is this idea that that it accomplishes the power of God to transfer us from darkness to light, from living for ourselves to living for God, from trying to be our own hero to realizing that we will never be our hero. Or maybe we'll live that way and in the end, we'll be crushed. but to lead us to the point where we place our confidence in the Lord. I want you to go to Ezekiel 16. Hold your spot in First Peter. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel 16. This is what Rick read at the beginning of our service. Um, start of verse 4. I hope you bring a Bible to church. You really should. Not because it's spiritual, but just because it's how we know the Lord, through reading Scripture. Verse six, chapter 16, verse 4. I want you to hear this. Um, as for you, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. Nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, and you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, listen to God's activity in salvation here. When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. He says that twice on purpose. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and grew up, you grew up and you became tall and you arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were, and you, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at your age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. When I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Let me ask you this question. Do you live in confidence? Like, as a Christian, I don't know how we cannot live in confidence when that's our story. Wallowing in our blood. And God comes and sovereignly rescues us and adorns us and makes us beautiful. That's our story. But it goes on, like so many times in the Old Testament, to show the story go bad. Because here's what happens. She starts to pursue her own story. Look at verse 15. But you trust it in your beauty. Like, how, how is that not us? It's like God's great salvation to bring us to this place where we're incredibly beautiful in Him. Then what do we do? We trust in our beauty. You trusted in your beauty. You played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewelry of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men. And with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set before them for a pleasing Aroma, And so it was, declares the Lord, you took your sons and your daughters, which you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delighted them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the day of your youth. And when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood, and after all your wickedness, Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square, in the head of every street. You built your lofty place and you made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself as a passerby and multiplying your whorings. What a story of us. In God's great salvation in our lives and our desire to advance our own name, to advance our own story. Now, The chapter goes on to dive deeper and uglier into the abomination of running after your own story. But I want to jump to the end of that chapter. Verse 59. And I want you to see the beauty of God. The heroism of God. Verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Check this out. He's like, I'm going to deal with you as you have done. And then look at what he says. Yet I will remember my covenant. He's like, you broke your covenant. I'm going to deal with you. And the way I'm going to deal with you is I'm going to remember my covenant. I'm going to remember my love, my sovereign plan in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your daughters, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and I will show you now, I will show you now that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all you have done declares the Lord. There's no room for personal heroism when we understand the biblical picture of salvation. That when God sets his electing love on a person, the covenant remains true to the end. Get that. When God sets his electing love on a person, the covenant remains true to the end always. Why? Because the covenant is God, not ours. Because what happened? She broke it. And God dealt with her according to his covenant, not hers. And saw it true through to the end. Now flip back to first Peter. Look at verse four. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Check this out to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, think about this idea of an inheritance. We think about an inheritance as a future reality, but I believe the Bible teaches that inheritance for a Christian is a present and a future reality. That it's an already but not yet reality of our faith because look at the four words uh, that describe the inheritance that we have in Christ, namely heaven, but also the fact that we live in relationship with him now. We don't wait till heaven, but we wait till heaven. You got me? What's what's the first word? Imperishable. Which means what? It's guaranteed to last forever. That's the reality of eternal life. That's the reality of not just when we get to heaven, it's going to be forever with him. But even now, we live in the fact that our salvation is, is imperishable. It's going to last forever. It's also undefiled, which means what? It's guaranteed to stay pure. Why? Because it's Christ's righteousness. Like you can't undo the righteousness of Christ. Once the righteousness of Christ is given to you, you can't undo the righteousness of Christ. If you can, it was never given to you. It's unfading. It's guaranteed to remain unchanged. Why? Because of what verse 5 says. It's kept in heaven for you. How? By God's power. Because here's the deal. We give ourselves way too much credit. We think we have the power to undo the sovereign, salvific work of God in our lives. Don't give yourself that much credit. He set his love on you. He put his covenant within you. He's going to see it through. You know how? Through your faith. Huh? Didn't we just read earlier about my faith is really bad? Look at verse look at verse 5. I'm just reading the scripture. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith? Through your faith. So it's this reality where God's journeying and he's inviting you in. And he's using your faith as a means to bring about his plan. I know I'm diving deep. And I hope you this week dive deep to get into this stuff. But this is the scriptures. This idea of guarding Here's what it has, a double connotation. It it means to to be kept from escaping, but also to protect from attack. So when it says that God is guarding you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, he's keeping you from escaping, but also he's protecting you from attack. John 10 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. I had a friend ask me once, Can you jump out? That's a great question. Well, if I didn't really do much to get in, can I do much to get out? So what, and, then, and then the beauty of Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this. Like Hear this. I know you're wrestling with this. I know this is, know this is deep. This, I'm not sure. What's, what are we doing here? Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So salvation the story of redemption in the world in our lives is a story of God's work. That God sees through. Yes, we have decisions. Yes, we have personal choice. Yes, that's a part. And yes, the Bible teaches God's sovereignty, man's free will, man's choices bring into the reality of God's sovereignty over salvation. How do you reconcile those? That's incredibly tough. That's your assignment this week. That's incredibly tough. But the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches both, and I don't have time to dive into How we do that. But two things I want to point out to you. When we fail to position ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace and we begin to run to our own story, there's just two things I want to warn you about. The first one is this. We don't have any ability to live in confidence. Why? When I'm not walking out my identity... I'm, I'm not going to be able to live in the confidence of who I am. When you struggle with your identity, when you struggle with your image, when you struggle with like, what you're doing, like, do you live in confidence? No. And so the reality is, is that when you fail to position yourself as a Christian under the waterfall of God's grace and live in His electing love that He has set on you, what happens? How do you walk in confidence? You don't. You can't. Apart from repenting. I mean, look at King David. It says he was a man after God's own heart. What did he do? He committed adultery. He committed murder. In that moment of his life, could we look at him and say, he's a child of God? No way. Well, he made a decision when he was five. I'm not seeing a decision manifested right now. He just killed a dude and took his wife. It's just, well, no by fruit so in the in the reality of sin there's not a confidence in okay what's happening here but the confidence lies in the in the reality of what did what did david do Psalm 51 he repented and the confidence came was restored in the fact that he he repented of his sin so when we fail to position ourselves under the waterfall of god's grace We can't walk in confidence. But when we live in repentance, we have absolute confidence in the identity of Christ that's ours. And number two, when we suffer, when, when we fail to position ourselves under this waterfall of God's grace, we'll suffer under the consequence of our sin. Sin brings consequence. You see that all over the place. And that's the reality, and that's what will happen. And we will fail to enjoy the freedom that comes from being children of God, living as children of God, living out our identity. Hebrews 7, chapter verse 25, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, says this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I love that. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. King Jesus is up in heaven and he is fighting his tail off for us. There's a battle going on and some of you are losing it and you don't even know it. You don't even realize you're in a fight. Jesus knows. But he is able to save to the uttermost it's his story. He is the hero. Amen? Amen. You can talk. We can be charismatic. He is the hero. Let's worship him as that. Let's, let's live as if that's true. And when the enemy comes and he speaks lies to us as if you better rise to the occasion. You're a piece of trash. You don't match up. You say, In the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. And I claim the reality God is the hero. I'm not. Let's pray. Papa, you are so wise. And your wisdom. We wish we could dive deeper into it, and we can. We wish we could fully know it, and one day we will. But, God, we sit under the weight of you are sovereign. You are supreme. You are in control. And you're the hero of the redemptive story that you're writing right now. In our hearts, in our lives, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. And, God, we submit to you being that hero. And we say, God, forgive us for the times when we try to rise to the occasion to play the part of God in our own salvation, in the salvation of our friends, in understanding the work of salvation. And God, humble us and teach us. God, as we study this deeper, as we get our minds around this, uh, this idea, would you, by your, gra- by your grace, enable us to understand more deeply who you are and more biblically the picture of the gospel and your work in it. In Christ's name, amen.